Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's event, uh, hosted by the University of Bath Institute for Policy Research. Thank you for joining us online for the fourth event in our series, Emotions. My name's Ian White, uh, and I'm based here at the university and vice chancellor. I'm delighted to be welcoming you this evening. The oceans cover 71% of our planet's surface. We rely on them to support human life and our economic, cultural, social, and environmental well-being. But our oceans are under threat. With the effects of climate change increasingly evident, seawater temperatures are rising rapidly. Continued ocean warming is it projected to lead to marine ecosystems disappearing, systems which are essential for biodiversity and food and livelihood for millions of people. Around half the world's population relies on fish as a major source of protein. And the fishing industry employs over 56 million people across the globe. Yet the way we fish is unsustainable boosting carbon emissions, depleting wildlife and polluting our oceans. And we must find new ways to protect fish stock numbers while sustainably feeding populations and protecting our oceanic ecosystems. Going forward, how will the seafood industry interact with ocean-based renewable energy production intended to help economies move away from fossil fuels? How will the seafood industry interact with restoration and conservation projects that take up and store carbon, which also strengthen resilience to climate change impacts through natural coastal ecosystem defenses? And how will companies in this sector have to change their own practices to contribute to net zero by 2050? And what or role or value do fish stock numbers have to play in future carbon trading? This evening, we're delighted, and it's indeed a particular privilege for me, to welcome the president of the Ocean Foundation, Mark Spaulding, to discuss the future of seafood in a changed ocean and address these important global questions. Mark, Thank you for joining us. And we're delighted to welcome you online this evening. And we're very grateful for your time and expertise. Really looking forward to your lecture. Thank you again, all at home, for joining us online from around the globe indeed. And before Mark begins this lecture, it's now my pleasure to pass over to Dr. Aurelie Charles for a short introduction. Thank you. Good evening, everyone, and thank you to Professor White for his introduction. I would also like to extend my welcome to you all this evening and to Mark, of course, for joining us for tonight's lecture. My name is Dr. Orly Charles, and I lecture in global political economy in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences here at the University of Bath. This evening, we're delighted to be joined by Mark, uh, who will be giving us a lecture on the future of seafood in a changed ocean. Mark is an expert in international environmental policy and law, ocean policy and law, and coastal and uh, marine philanthropy. 
He is president of the Ocean Foundation and member of the Ocean Studies Board, the US National Committee for the Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development, and the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the US. He's also serving on the Sergei Sussi Commission and is also a senior fellow at the Center for the Blue Economy at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. He's also an advisor to the high level panel for a sustainable ocean economy. In addition, Mark serves as the advisor to the Rockefeller Climate Solutions Fund and the Credit Suisse Rockefeller Ocean Engagement Fund. He's also a member of the pool of experts for the UN World Ocean Assessment and designed the first ever blue carbon offset program called Seagrass Grow. Mark, we're really thrilled to have you with us uh, today and we very much look forward to your uh, lecture. Once we've heard from Mark, we'll open it up to you at home for questions and discussion. Thank you all again for joining us and I'll now pass over to Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much, Drs. White and Charles, for the generous introduction and, of course, for the, the invitation to uh, be here today to, to talk about uh, the changed ocean and how that relates to, to seafood. Before I even begin, let's talk a tiny bit about the fact that there's sort of three aspects to the change of the ocean. We started in thinking about climate change by what was going to happen to us, storms and things that would hit our coasts. We next moved on to asking ourselves, well, what is climate change to the ocean? Now we've moved into a third phase of, of talking about how the ocean can be an ally to address climate change. I'm going to try and touch on all of those things, um, but also tell you uh, a little bit about my organization briefly, quickly, um, and how this all relates to uh, seafood, and then you know, close out with solutions and goals that, that we can, can look towards going forward. The Ocean Foundation is based in Washington, D.C. Um, we are a global philanthropic organization. Um, we work in about 40 different countries on six continents. Uh, in in a, a small world uh, piece, I'm coming to you today from my home in Bath, Maine. Uh, we are, we are, are all sharing the, the, the name. Uh, the mission of the Ocean Foundation is to reverse the trend of destruction of ocean environments around the world, and we do that by supporting other groups in all of those places where we work. In approximately 20 years worth of our existence, we have given away 74, uh, almost 75 million US dollars in four categories, protecting species, protecting habitat in special places, uh, expanding the capacity of the marine conservation uh, sphere, and then on public awareness and ocean literacy. Uh, I already mentioned that we are in 40 countries on six continents, and we really try and work on coastal and marine conservation. Um, our organization uh, has uh, philanthropic services for donors. We also host projects uh, for others called fiscal sponsorship. 
but we do have a few initiatives of our own where we actually um, implement our own activities and and the three of biggest of those are here in front of you. Uh, we've been working uh, since nearly our, our beginning on ocean acidification, both on science and policy, working to build the capacity of the world to address these issues going forward. Um, we are also working on blue resilience, uh, which is directly related to this the subject of this talk, thinking about how we build resilience uh, of coastal communities uh, in the face of climate change, uh, as well as take up carbon. Uh, one of our newer initiatives is focused on the chemistry of plastic, thinking about how we can redesign plastic to make it uh, more simplified and standardized, and perhaps even while we're doing that, less toxic uh, and therefore potentially more recyclable. There we go. Um, so let's talk about fisheries uh, and aquaculture and you know as as the two major um, ocean-based sources of seafood uh, as ian said 71 percent of our planet is covered with water uh, half of the population lives near the coast and one in uh, seven people depend on the ocean for their protein sources um, and and that's a a gigantic number um, uh, as he mentioned um, ocean warming, acidification, and deoxygenation that are the result of greenhouse gas emissions are substantially changing the ocean and threatening our seafood, whether that comes from wild-caught fisheries or from aquaculture. This is a $400 billion a year uh, sector, the, the sectors of uh, wild-caught fisheries, uh, aquaculture, related processing, shipping, and byproducts. And it employs 39 million people in fishing and over 20 million in fish farming or aquaculture. We're seeing substantial changes in the weather, uh, rain patterns, wind temperatures, um, and also similar changes in the ocean as a result of carbon dioxide emissions. To oversimplify, I'm going to talk a little bit about climate change being about physics and ocean acidification being about chemistry. Both of them are fundamentally changing our ocean. We are all familiar with graphs like this that show the, that the ocean temperature is going up, a very clear pattern that can be, be observed. Um, this means that the water itself is warmer. We are observing sea level rise uh, and particularly uh, events of sea level rise during uh, full moons, uh, nuisance flooding, um, much more severe storms, extreme rain, rain events. Uh, interestingly, the flip side of that, of course, is in some places some drought. Um, all of those, uh, that energy focused on the coast is going to alter our coasts and cause erosion. The warming piece of it is, you know, the fact that the ocean is our balancing 
uh, temperature sink, heat sink for our planet, right? We wouldn't be able to live here if we didn't have this giant body of water that absorbed the heat that came into our atmosphere from the sun. And our, our risk is is that we are overwarming the ocean um, to a point where its systems aren't going to function very well anymore. So let's talk specifically about seafood. In the map on the left, you can see that at the polar regions, the changes in temperature are more extreme than they are uh, at, at the tropics, um, which is, does not mean that the tropics are unaffected, but you know, this is the, the, one of the things we need to always remember is that the changes in the ocean are not uniform, they are uh, broad. As those changes take place, systems such as the, the current uh, channels in the ocean that make a place like the UK um, much more livable than it possibly should be given how far north it is, um, will change. And if those systems are destabilized as a result of ice melt and other things uh, going into the water and the actual surface temperatures changing, we could see substantial changes in the comfort zones uh, where I live in Maine or where Bath is in the UK. These temperature changes directly are going to uh, address fish metabolism, their growth rates, reproduction and productivity, um, migratory patterns, and that's going to be particularly difficult for uh, fisheries. Um, but also some uh, issues around susceptibility to diseases and toxins that are going to be more likely to um, uh, succeed in uh, warmer waters. Um, this will also change where uh, animals are, and that could uh, disrupt food chains entirely. Um, in the photograph on the left, of course, is, is a coral reef. Um, fisheries are very dependent on coral reefs. Coral reefs can't migrate, certainly can't migrate as quickly um, as other animals can, and therefore they are dying very rapidly as a result of heat more than any other aspect of climate change, and we will lose their role in the food chain. So, again, we have to remember that this is a variable outcome. Some uh, things are going to flourish, some things are going to fail. Some of that is going to do with who can migrate and who can't. Um, so let me give you an interesting uh, example here. Uh, due to warm water, a, a very, very large crab fishery on the west coast of North America has had a, a failure to open uh, to, to fishing season. Uh, due to unusually warm waters causing an algal bloom that has introduced a toxic neurotoxin into the food chain. So this tree just can't even be done and it's dangerous uh, to, to be done. Um, and so our health authorities said, you know, let's, let's not take this risk. Unfortunately, um, the animals in the sea who also eat crab didn't get the notice. Um, and therefore, we've seen uh, a lot of, of harm to pinnipeds uh, um, and, and other animals as a result of the neurotoxins. Uh, 
On the flip side, warmer waters has meant you know increased catches in lobster fisheries um, in the northeast of the United States where I am and uh, on the east coast of Canada, uh, jumping tremendously uh, in in quantity uh, from 2014 uh, to 2018 and and still increasing today. Um, uh, there there are again variations in that you know, we're seeing uh, some some reduced catch in Maine as the lobsters move farther north, but fundamentally, um, you know, this is a, a species that seems to be um, growing in its population as a result of of, uh, of the warmth. But what we fundamentally see is those fish, particularly commercial fish species that we're, we monitor more than other species, are changing their location in the ocean. And you can see in the two graphs on the right that you know they're going deeper in the water column uh, where it is cooler, or they're moving uh, far north um, in, in uh, the northern hemisphere uh, and farther south in the southern hemisphere um, to go to cooler waters uh, that, you know, basically takes them to the back to their comfort zone. Um, you know, eventually they may run out of space, but for the moment, this is going to continue. Uh, this has serious implications for fisheries, right? Do you have the gear to fish at a lower depth? Do you have the legal right to go farther north in the ocean? Uh, do you have um, access? Do you have uh, the afford the cost of, of going farther to catch the fish you're used to catching. All right, that was heat and, and warming. Let's talk about sea level rise. Very similar graph, just getting worse and worse over time. Um, it means more flooding and uh, risk for fisheries in that coastal infrastructure can be damaged, um, passage under bridges, um, can be uh, more and more difficult. Um, containers from ships can be dislodged um, and buildings themselves can be damaged in severe storms as a result of, of sea level rise. It's also a real risk for the fishers themselves, right? You have uh, a, an already risky business uh, that has a you know, relatively high uh, risk uh, and you add more severe storms. And this is a human safety issue, whether you're at sea or in some of those near shore facilities. All of that may make insurance costs higher um, and otherwise affect the profitability of, of fish. I included this slide just to, uh, often when I talk to North Americans, uh, there's a gigantic seafood show every year in Boston. And basically projections are that, you know, everything around it will be underwater as a result of sea level rise. Therefore, those in the fishing industry know what it's going to look like. All right, so warming, sea level rise. Now let's talk about the chemistry changes to the ocean. Um, ocean acidification first. This is a, a uh, increase in the acidity of the ocean, right? The ocean's not going to become acid, but it's going to become a little bit more acidic. And 
This is the uh, carbon deposition from the atmosphere into the ocean. So this is why it's it's a little bit more of a chemistry change than a physics one that happens with the heat um, in in uh, warming and, and sea level rise. Um, again, it's very clear to see, thanks to historic measurements, that the pH is going down and the water is becoming uh, more acidic over time. Um, we've seen a 30% increase in acidity since the Industrial Revolution. In addition to coming from um, our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, it also can come, uh, uh, additional contributors are stormwater runoff, um, uh, uh, fertilizers and things like this that can uh, contribute. Um, and, and what we see in these instances uh, is that there are different chemistry formations um, in the ocean as a, as a result of the uh, access to more carbon and some of that ends up forming uh, carbonic acid. So unfortunately, um, the very, very bottom of the food chain, uh, pteropods, also called sea butterflies, uh, have a shell. And that shell is very, very thin, and it is in danger of uh, being unable to form its shell or to live easily and well uh, in a more acidic ocean. And most of our fisheries are dependent on that food chain, starting with those basic um, uh, plankton-like pteropod creatures. Uh, and that is going to be a risk. If we take out the bottom of the food chain, what are the smaller animals going to eat? Also, some of our major whale species rely on those um, uh, pteropods for their their livelihood uh, as well. Uh, so we are very worried about um, places that are going to become more vulnerable to, to this. This is also something that can affect um, shellfish aquaculture. Uh, in fact, this was really how um, ocean acidification was identified as we went forward. And in this uh, illustration here, you can see the normal development of um, some uh, shellfish and the malformation uh, as a result of being exposed to more acidic um, waters. And what happens here is that more and more energy has to be expended trying to grow these shells and therefore less energy is spent on the actual substance of the animal and you end up with a, a loss of strength, a loss of capacity for um, the animal to survive. Um, by the way, that photograph on the far right there is one of the sea butterflies um, or, or pteropods that I mentioned earlier. Um, you can kind of see why it's called a, a sea butterfly with the two wings. So uh, if we think about how um, OA, ocean acidification, affects uh, fish uh, from a food standpoint or from shellfish growing things, we also can see that you have a problem with uh, 
the fish after they're they're born, right? Uh, they many many fish operate on a sense of smell, and uh, the acidity of the ocean changes the smell of the ocean, which means if it changes over a lifetime, it may be harder for them to find suitable habitat, harder if they're uh, fish that, that return to um, a river for them to, to find that, that river home. It also may mean that they can't smell predators the way they used to. And so all of this combines to create some really interesting threats uh, to seafood as the uh, animals become more sensitive to to this. Um, we believe, uh, based on studies that have been done so far, that uh, the cost to commercial fishing and aquaculture as a result of this could be as much as $1 trillion U.S. dollars uh, by the end of, of this century. Um, and that's, you know, pretty significant and you know, something that, that we're going to have to, to worry about. And that's just talking about the effect on the commercial species that, that we need uh, for our, our consumption. If we think about synergies, um, the combination of ocean warming and acidification, when they occur simultaneously, we are really stressing out the, spe the commercial species and the ecosystems that, that they rely upon. Fortunately, there are some things that we can do with regard to ocean acidification. Uh, seagrass meadows, um, which are global, um, except for a few places in Antarctica, um, take up and store carbon, uh, take up carbon out of the water column and store it. Um, we've lost substantial parts of those seagrass meadows around the world, and so we have an opportunity to restore them and keep them healthy so that they keep doing this job of taking up carbon out of the water column and moving it first into their plant structure and then into um, burial in the, in the soil. This is one of the reasons that we created uh, a the first ever uh, blue offset calculator. Uh, it is available online at seagrassgrow.org. It allows people to calculate their carbon footprint and then donate enough money to uh, offset that uh, scale of, of carbon footprint. Uh, we do restoration of seagrasses, mangroves, and salt marsh estuaries with this money. We've invested substantially in a third-party certification uh, from VCS, Verified Carbon Standard, uh, so that this eventually can become a certified carbon credit. Uh, in fact, the first projects using the methodology are underway now. We can also do some things to adapt to ocean acidification. Um, and these things in, involve uh, activities like testing the, the pH of the water, monitoring it carefully. If you have a, a shellfish uh, hatchery associated with your, your aquaculture, you can shut off the intakes during an acidification event. You can um, add uh, buffers to the water. Um, you can do things locally to the the uh, uh, larvae stage 
um, spat grow to healthy shellfish before you, you put them out into to the ocean. All of this helps us um, with the success of, of these animals. The other chemistry change as a result of greenhouse gas emissions uh, and some other things that we do is uh, the, the basic removal of oxygen in, in the ocean. Um, this is a consequence of emissions of, of CO2. It's also as a result of warming. Um, it is, uh, uh, has, again, has synergy with ocean acidification. Um, it often happens at the mouth of the river where there are fossil fuel-based fertilizers going out causing large um, algal blooms that uh, suck up a lot of energy uh, and oxygen. Uh, while they, they rapidly grow, feeding on the fertilizer, and then um, also suck out a lot of oxygen in the system um, when they die off, when they run out of the, the fertilizer, um, and they uh, decompose, and that uses up a lot of oxygen. Um, so I already mentioned that it's, you know, some of the, the fossil fuel fertilizers, nitrogen, um, uh, and, and how this runs off of land that cause it and how it relates to um, harmful algal blooms. So what we see here in this instance is that it's going to have a, a very um, strong impact on seafood. There'll be you know, higher costs related to taking longer trips um, or spending less time um, on the fishing ground. Uh, in some cases, fish will be crowded next to shore um, where they, they are easier to catch, and that, that'll skew things in the other direction. Um, it just makes it a lot more unpredictable as well uh, because we, you know, the fish will obviously, those who can move and move quickly, will move to a place where they do have access to oxygen, but you can also have rapid events that cause rapid die-offs. So if we have warming and its related sea level rise, acidification and deoxygenation, you know, what should the solutions we're all working on look like? And part of this has got to be about, you know, protecting the coastal communities, but also the, the sort of um, supply chain for, for seafood since so many of us both like it and are depending upon it. Uh, this is going to mean uh, increased international co-management solutions for fisheries. Um, you know, we've seen this sort of locally in that, you know, lobster I mentioned earlier um, used to be very prevalent in, in New York and uh, Connecticut. Then they became very prevalent in Massachusetts. Now in Maine, and in Canada, well, as they've migrated north with with the warmth, you know, the questions arise of, you know, okay, if I'm a fisherman in New York and I've got a license to catch lobster and the lobster aren't there anymore, is my license associated with the species and I can go to the next jurisdiction north and fish for them? Or is my, my, my license extinguished and the new jurisdiction has to, to do something? When we also get out into international waters and shared waters, you start having even more challenges and it gets really interesting.
what we need to do is is think about how we can increase marine protected areas um, both for how they relate to the blue carbon resources that can take up carbon and store carbon and create habitat um, but also to think about how we manage uh, fisheries. Um, uh, Doctors uh, White and Charles mentioned uh, the fact that, that fish have a role in the carbon system, which we'll talk about, and I think that becomes a key part of, of what we're thinking about, and MPAs can help us um, keep the fish in the ocean and keep them in uh, the, the ocean's carbon pump. Now, obviously, the most, absolutely most important thing that we can do about climate change is reduce greenhouse gas emissions, period, full stop. If anybody says, oh, you know, we can work on these other things, tell them, okay, yeah, we can work on other things, but this is critical. It's got to happen, and it's got to happen quickly. We don't have a ton of time. We need to do this, and, you know, Having a lecture like this online um, is, you know, such a, an a improvement over perhaps how we might have done this before the pandemic, uh, and in which there would have been a carbon footprint for flying uh, to to Bath to give the lecture in person. We we know all sorts of ways we can reduce emissions. We also know about renewable energy and all sorts of things we can do to switch um, uh, to other energy sources and we are developing electric cars and all sorts of, of other systems and propulsion systems and etc that will make a difference. Another common solution is shifting our human diets. Um, you know, if we move away from very intensive land-based sources of protein beef, pork, chicken, uh, et cetera, um, and move to uh, ideally a vegetarian or vegan, vegan diet, we will have a much, much smaller carbon footprint. And if most of us do that, it will have a gigantic impact. As a, a transition or as a, a alternative uh, to provide some protein sources for some people, uh, sustainably harvested fish or sustainably farmed fish, uh, seaweeds and kelps uh, can play a role in those new diets. I already mentioned that you know we can take carbon out of the atmosphere, take it out of the water column by looking at um, restoring seagrasses, mangroves, uh, uh, estuary marshes, um, all of which will take up carbon, um, move it into their plant structure, and then bury it in the soil all naturally, um, all generally speaking without using any 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 uh, generated energy sources um, other than perhaps if we, we do need to do uh, some, some restoration. Similarly, we are all looking at uh, the core of both microalgae and macroalgae uh, as a way to you know, as they, you know, they're plants, and so as they take, uh, do photosynthesis, they're going to take up carbon. Um, the question with these is, you know, there's not necessarily the same kind of natural storage 
for the carbon. You have to figure out something to do with the microalgae or the macroalgae, seaweeds, sargassum, etc., um, to bury it. Um, and, and that means moving it, burying it, uh, changing it into something else, all of which may require energy and all of which may you know leak, um, uh, et cetera. So we, we need to figure out how to do this right if we're, we're going to do it. In addition to those nature-based solutions and human behavior change, there are also a lot of techno fixes, uh, geoclimate engineering or geoengineering um, that have been discussed with regard to addressing climate change. And I understand those are going to be the subject of some of the conversations of this uh, series of lectures. So I wanted to be sure and include them here. Two of the most popular um, uh, are uh, artificial iron fertilization, dumping iron filings into the ocean to stimulate uh, the growth of, of surface microalgae and uh, ocean alkalization uh, using some natural sources. Um, the, uh, as, as Dr. Charles mentioned in my bio, I sit on the Ocean Studies Board of the U.S.'s National Academy of, of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and we just issued a report in, in December talking about these uh, methodologies and, and a few others. And to, to uh, oversimplify, we basically said, you know, a lot of these things aren't ready, um, aren't available to us yet, and we really need to study and understand them and what they might uh, do in terms of positive outcomes for dealing with climate change, but also you know, ask ourselves, what are the unintended consequences of doing these activities? You know, even if they're natural sources, where is the iron going to come from? Where is the al ocean alkalization going to come from? What is the entire life cycle analysis of mining, transport uh, to, to shore, and then transport from shore out to a dumping site, um, and then, you know, if the iron fire fertilization works, um, you know, what is the result at the sea surface level? Uh, and does the carbon get sunk? Uh, can we measure that? Um, you know, does it have uh, effects on, on uh, downstream nutrient supply? Or, uh, you know, you heard me talk earlier about deoxygenation. If we are fostering uh, algal blooms, are we risking deoxygenation in some places? And, and the, the simple answer is we don't really know enough yet. Uh, and so the report we just issued, you know, calls for a lot more study. Um, the few studies that have been done uh, before, um, you know, indicate that ocean alkalization um, could really potentially help um, uh, shellfish aquaculture in particular uh, by avoiding ocean acidification, at least locally, where that is done. The experiments that have been done on iron fertilization don't look quite as good for um, 
fisheries um, and don't seem yet to indicate uh, helpfulness. But you you will be able write claims that both of these can be used to increase biomass in the ocean and therefore increase uh, the number of fish. In addition to those two uh, that I just mentioned, there are a number of other techno fixes that have been discussed. Some of these more are, are more reasonable than others. Some are, uh, you know, kind of, of far-fetched. Um, there are ocean alkalization efforts that use synthetic sources and, you know, we're, you know, like, wait a minute, what is the chemistry result of that? What What is the biological interaction with the chemistry change? How is that going to be known and measured before we start using something like that? Um, you know, the, the precautionary principle should tell us that we need to be extremely careful. Uh, there are some mechanical or chemical ways to remove carbon from the water column, similar to the way plants do. Um, these could have some very positive synergies with aquaculture. Um, these probably are worth investigating. It's, it's, it's you know, too early to tell. There's some things about marine cloud brightening, uh, sea surface reflectivity, uh, both of which uh, enhance the albedo effect or the, the uh, reflection of the heat back um, all away from the ocean. Um, these, these will help with the warming piece, possibly, um, but they won't necessarily help deal with carbon emissions themselves. Uh, same thing with um, what's called SRM, or solar radiation modification, um, which, uh, you know, involves putting uh, mirrors into space or uh, spraying um, uh, tiny particles of acid into the uh, upper atmosphere um, to reflect light. Um, you know, very, very difficult to um, manage, uh, would require, you know, substantial international uh, cooperation. Um, the marine cloud brightening one of those three um, may work in some places uh, and be local enough that, you know, if you're you're trying to save a particular set of, of areas of, of coral reefs, it might be worth uh, trying. Uh, and we're, we're hoping that that could be the case. Surface reflectivity, you know, the, the original ideas on this from the 1960s and 70s was to, you know, float foam or small plastic particles on the ocean surface. Um, and, you know, those, those are just, I think, non-starters in, in the sense of, of what we now know about ocean pollution, uh, the effect of plastic in the ocean, uh, et cetera. Um, and the solar radiation thing is, you know, requires entire, you know, new aircraft and, and a huge uh, space uh, installation. It, it just gets very interesting and optimizing uh, with solar radiation modification. Uh, if we if we look at the two most populous countries in the world, China and India, if we optimize for China, it will cause a huge drought in India. If we optimize for India, 
uh, it will cause severe cold in in China, and so we have a serious you know problem there. And you know it would be very tempting for one country to optimize if they can afford to do so for their own country. The last one I'll just mention here because it's talked about quite a bit is is using machines to artificially upwell or downwell waters. And um, these, of course, you know, are moving the water, uh, moving the the uh, uh, natural elements of the water, the plankton, the pteropods, uh, etc. So they will have some effect on on fisheries. Um, they could move carbon lower into the water column. They could bring nutrients up and cause uh, you know expanded growth of of Plankton, um, they may be worth investigating, uh, but again, part of what we're trying to do in the, the National Academy study I mentioned, as well as a related study from the Aspen Institute on a code of conduct for doing experiments on these geoengineering, climate engineering techno fixes, is that we have to, to really be holistic in our thinking and really be careful, right? Um, and, and one element of that is asking ourselves, you know, can any of these even come online in time for us to do something about climate change quickly enough? Um, will they affect fisheries and therefore food security? Will they affect coastal communities? You know, a lot of socioeconomic questions, a lot of timing questions, et cetera, et cetera. And we should prioritize our research spending accordingly. In addition to those sort of science concerns, there's also uh, what's what's called a moral hazard, and that is, you know, simply talking about having these techno fixes or climate engineering solutions may lead to us relaxing too much in our effort to reduce carbon emissions, changing our diets, changing our behaviors. And that's a, a moral hazard that we, we simply can't afford. All right, let's take this back to seafood for a moment. Uh, if those are you know a whole set of solutions, including the, the ones that we know already, the ones that are, are natural uh, and therefore no regret strategies, what role can the seafood sector itself have, particularly if the goal is to get to net zero emissions by 2050? So we want um, the seafood sector to calculate and disclose its carbon footprint and pr produce detailed plans on how it's going to get to net zero. Um, as was mentioned in my bio, we are uh, the ocean advisors to an ocean engagement fund. Um, we have uh, almost $800 million uh, in assets under investment in that uh, fund, and we're buying stock in companies, and then we're going and engaging with them. We're talking to them about changes they can make, and this is exactly what we're doing when we talk to fishing conglomerates um, and anyone else in the the chain supply chain for seafood what are you going to do and how are you going to do it 
to get to net zero uh, by 2050. We also, and this is a reference to the role of fish in the carbon uh, cycle, uh, and that is if we get rid of illegal practices, bycatch, and waste, we could leave more fish in the ocean. And because they participate in the carbon cycle, they eat the plant material that has taken carbon out of the atmosphere, they defecate, the defecation sinks, or when they die, they sink, um, that carbon gets moved to the sea floor. That system works, and it works naturally. Leaving more fish in the sea can help us do that. Obviously, the thing I mentioned about changing our human diets could work against that, and that could be a really interesting challenge. I already talked about the MPAs. Fishing companies, fishermen, uh, are often opposed to marine protected areas, often uh, feel that they are, are uh, anti-fishing or uh, areas of no fishing, and I think they need to get more engaged in understanding how they actually increase biomass, decrease acidification, remove carbon from the atmosphere, and move it into burial in the seafloor. Um, and so asking some of these uh, fishing companies and uh, players in the fishing sector uh, uh, supply chain to support MPAs is an important part of what we will ask. We want to uh, also talk about supporting ecosystem-based adaption um, and then, you know, renewable energy. Um, you know, one of the ways we get out of using fossil fuel energy is to switch to wind, solar, um, wave energy, ocean currents energy, ocean thermal conversion energy. Um, so many of these can be placed uh, offshore. Well, that's also where fishing takes place. So we have a conflict of uses. And so we have to figure out how to resolve that. Right now in Maine, where I'm sitting, there's a huge proposal to uh, build a wind farm. And it is being heavily opposed by lobster fishermen who are seeing their animals migrate north as a result of climate change. So a, a form of energy that could, you know, directly uh, help address climate change, uh, they're opposing because it's going to be in, in the way of, of their fishing. So we need to find the, the pathway to um, cooperation on renewable energy and how we do that. In addition to uh, the actual fishing or the habitat where they fish in, uh, Fishers can also look at their vessels and the vessels they transport fish in. Uh, you know, improved maintenance can increase efficiency and lower emissions. They can uh, do a better job maintaining the holes to reduce drag. Uh, they can uh, steam uh, at a slower speed and reduce emissions. Uh, they can begin now retrofitting uh, their existing vessels to use uh, alternative fuels that may help with um, emissions such as ammonia and green hydrogen. Uh, they can, you know, look at new propulsion systems, uh, electric, uh, sail, 
um, uh, et cetera, that can be, be adopted and reduce the emissions from the fishing vessels themselves. We probably need to reduce or eliminate most long distance fisheries. Most of them, uh, if you look at high seas fisheries, those that are outside or beyond national jurisdiction, they're mostly catching luxury products for the wealthy. They're not really about food security. So we probably think a lot about reducing them. Um, both those long distance fisheries and the size of our fishing fleets are as a result in many cases of subsidies from governments to artificially prop up these industries. And, you know, there's a huge effort being made to put an end to those subsidies. And the money those governments are spending on those subsidies for the industry might be better spent on marine protected areas, which will actually increase biomass and make fishing locally much more possible. Um, we also are, are spending some time looking at, you know, on refrigeration equipment uh, and how we can get to, you know, no, no global warming technologies uh, for those sorts of things. Um, on the aquaculture side, um, you know, they have uh, the, the tenders that go out and service their facilities. They have uh, automatic feeding systems. They have uh, other structures and such. They can convert uh, most of those, we believe, to um, electric um, or even, you know, uh, non-fuel burning uh, vessels altogether. Uh, to to serve this this sector of the industry, we also want to look at the role of fossil fuel in in some of the gear, mean ropes, nets, uh, floats that on the bumpers on the side of the vessels, made from fossil fuel based plastics, and we can look at alternatives there and and get that piece of uh, fossil fuel used by this industry uh, reduced or eliminated. Uh, there's also certain types of gear, such as bottom trawling, that you know make fuel use skyrocket. Because you can imagine if you're dragging something on the sea floor and it's uh, a, a net filling with fish and whatever else they're getting, um, it's putting a strain on the engine and therefore having it work harder um, and be less efficient. So I want to talk to the seafood industry about its um, plastic packaging, um, how it ships uh, its product around the world. And this is absolutely critical to uh, some of its ways to reduce its emissions and use of fossil fuels. Um, we also think they can, you know, involve um, their workers, the communities that fish, um, their supply chain, to think about how we do all of those things I've just mentioned in a just and equitable way. If we, we do all of this very suddenly and, and uh, displace people, um, we could be in real problem. The good news is that some of our most carbon intensive fisheries are also some of the worst of our fisheries. And therefore, you know, we can do a lot by focusing on those. We want this industry to care um, because their, their, their own boats, their own employees are at risk. Uh, their livelihoods are at risk. 
their income streams are at risk, and their role in supplying world food security is at risk. And if they understand all of that, I think they will slowly begin to act. That has certainly been our experience as we engage corporate management in larger conglomerates that they really understand the role they play. Uh, in addition to the activities they can do now, they can also help support uh, research. Uh, they can help expand the data that we have uh, on climate and weather and uh, ocean chemistry. They can share data on fish catch. They can help you know, you know, do enforcement. Um, so all of this is things that, that, you know, academics, NGOs, and the industry can do together. So that we have a moment or two to uh, answer a few questions. Um, let me stop there. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Mark. That was a very insightful and system, systemic view of our oceans. So thank you very much. Uh, we'll start with a question around compliance management framework by a question by Tom uh, Lavak. Apologies, Tom, if I uh, mispronounce your name. So in the context of bottom contact fisheries here and the significant impact it has on sponge reef, which uh, themselves have an import, are important carbon sinks, um, there's little compliance effort, and, and this issue is not even included in compliance management framework. So do you see this as a, as a globally significant issue? So part of our big problem with fisheries is compliance um, worldwide in any fishery. Um, you know, governance is difficult um, and in some places simply absent. Uh, one of the things that we want to see happen is an increased uh, use of technology, um, aerial drones, surface drones, underwater drones that allow us to better observe when there is a violation. Uh, we also want to look at ways to make sure we are identifying when fishing is taking place in places where it ought not to take a not to take place. Um, I also think, frankly, that you know bottom trawling gear should simply just be phased out. Um, you know, there's no real justification for the harm it does to the seafloor, uh, to the carbon uptake, uh, uh, and as I mentioned already, it has significantly larger fuel use than, than other kinds of fishing gear, and we have alternative fishing gear we can use. Thank you, Mark. Another question here from Tom as well, uh, much more in terms of international maybe governance and national governance issue and uh, the implementation of marine protected uh, areas often implies multiple level of governance, multiple regulators at each uh, different level, and that makes it really difficult to achieve successful uh, collaboration and to have a, an effective protection of those uh, areas. Um, so even agency leaders here talk about collaboration with uh, little to, to achieve, to be achieved here. So here it's very uh, cost, uh, in terms of cost, uh, there's an excessive cost in bureaucratic efforts it puts into that, that will lead to some delay. So it may be answering in the context of uh, the, the, the opening today of the, the One Ocean Summit. Uh, should we be assessing uh, this issue and, and promote, and how can we promote more efficient collaboration here? I think the simple answer to should we promote more efficient collaboration is absolutely. 
Um, I think the One Ocean Summit that started today uh, that we, we have a staff person at and the Our Ocean Conference coming up in April in, in Palau have focused a lot on marine protected areas. Um, and there's the you know sort of global movement of 30% of the ocean protected by 2030, only 10 years, uh, less than 10 years from now. And part of what's happened in the Our Ocean Conference process is getting countries to make commitments to spatial areas to be protected, but then going back to them and saying, have you made it real? You know, you decreed it. Did you also put out a management plan? If you put out a management plan, did you also do enforcement activities? Are you patrolling it? Um, and that is a, a sort of um, community conversation, right? All of the nations who are at those meetings are asking each other, how are you doing that? Are you doing that? Um, and then beginning to think about collaboration. And I'm very hopeful that some of these uh, uh, satellite monitoring systems that allow us to watch fishing vessels from above, even when they have their, their transponders turned off, and some of these different drones and things will make some of the monitoring more efficient, right? You won't have to have crews on boats constantly patrolling, you can go out and go do interdiction of a vessel that has been spotted doing something illegal. Um, and I think that's going to change things dramatically, but it is going to require collaboration. And if, you know, one, one of my hopes here is under the Paris Agreement, if we're using these MPAs for carbon sequestration, that those countries who can afford it will help those countries who can less afford it, protect marine areas as carbon sinks, as conservation and restoration areas um, in their own waters, but also in the waters of their neighbors who may not be able to afford to protect them and, and, and patrol them themselves. Thank you. Uh, maybe while we're on the issue of governance here, I'd like to throw a question in terms of uh, what are the strategies in terms of uh, mitigation and adaptation that uh, could are and, and could be eventually implemented in, in international waters because that's quite an important part of our oceans and, and, and it's not bound to only one nation. So what sort of strategies do, do you have in mind here? So we're very um, optimistic uh, and I hope it's not misplaced optimism uh, about the UN negotiations uh, for a treaty uh, that would help us govern the areas beyond national jurisdiction. Um, and some of those areas are already governed by regional fisheries management uh, organizations, some who do a good job, uh, many of whom uh, could do a better job. And understanding the protection of biodiversity in those spaces and how they sort of belong to, you know, all of us and our, our common resources, common pooled resources that all of us should should protect uh, becomes a, a fundamentally real opportunity that could be spelled out in a new agreement. Um, you know, right now we don't necessarily have a sufficient articulation um, of that other than the, the um, Law of the Sea Convention um, and 
it only touches on aspects you know that it that were important at the time it was written such as commercial fisheries um you know thinking about how many other things we're doing in the ocean and how many other things we may do in the ocean we have to really understand and understand rights and obligations of nations in those common pool resource waters Yes, and as you rightly mentioned, we're running out of time. So it's really about to mention this hierarchy of priorities. And, and, and where do you see, therefore, maybe in the context of, um, of uh, the Blue Resilience Initiative, the community-led type of strategies, where do you see fitting uh, into that? So we think that, you know, you know many of the small island developing states or even developing states that are coastal are recognizing that you know, to protect their citizens um, from storm surges, sea level rise, et cetera, they can do these nature-based solutions. They can restore seagrasses, mangroves, and, and estuary marshes. Um, and they can also meet their Paris um, uh, nationally determined commitments that way. Um, so if you combine this opportunity to sink carbon and protect their infrastructure and people, they have a very strong incentive to, to go in that direction. And the developing countries, particularly those like mine, who are most responsible for the emissions, um, you know, have an obligation to be of assistance, uh, have an obligation to transfer technology, transfer solutions, um, and even you know, pay the bill for doing some of these things. Um, what we're seeing is that even at the community level, people are recognizing this, right? They, they know that their village, their small uh, uh, fishing town is occasionally getting flooded or, or otherwise uh, seeing more severe storms. And so beginning to interact and engage with them to get their support for this work as well will mean that there's buy-in and a, a, a community effort as well as a national effort and an international effort. Thank you, Mark. We have a question from Annie Bursley, uh, who remembers when iron filling were dumped in the Lake Superior, and that was a real disaster, it poisoned uh, the fish stock and had to be discontinued. Now, would you, how, what would happen if you scale that up at the uh, ocean level? How different would that be? So it, many of us went through that period of, of uh, acidic rain uh, and how it affects lakes. Um, something like that is happening again uh, in those lakes. Uh, some of this same uh, carbon dioxide is causing acidification of lakes and because they're shallower or smaller, the acidity can get higher and cause that kind of die off or, or uh, damage to the fisheries in, in those smaller water bodies. It is basically going to happen in the ocean as well, but fortunately the ocean is so large uh, and so deep, um, we don't expect to see the same kind of, of uh, obvious harms that that we saw with with um, lake acidification or riverine acidification as a result of acid rain. Um, having said that, we are seeing direct harms, and they're very much to these sort of shellfish, pteropods, etc. 
and they could have an effect on the food chain uh, in a in a way that is 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 very very negative. Uh, we also worry, for example, I mentioned uh, the solar uh, radiation modification using uh, jets that would spray sulfuric acid into the stratosphere. That you know we're talking about ways to deal with climate change that could introduce more uh, acidic rain, um, and so. You know, we have that's that's a great example of something that's known that happened that we should look at and avoid happening again. Thank you. We have one uh, last question on the effect uh, of artificial island. Do you have any data on the impact of artificial islands on the marine ecosystems? And if it's been detrimental, what sort of collaboration could be implemented to relieve that? Great uh, question. Um, I'm, as I sit here at this moment, um, I've certainly seen articles about the legal aspects of artificial islands and whether they can be used to create um, new national jurisdictions over the land or the water. Uh, certainly lots of disputes right now over the South China Sea uh, in exactly that regard. Um, there's also a lot of literature about artificial reefs and other artificial structures in the ocean and whether they are fish aggregators or actually create new habitat. Um, so I think that we know just enough to say, you know, creating artificial islands, you know, severely interferes with currents, uh, severely disturbs uh, seafloors and, and depending on where you're drawing the material from to create the artificial island which can release carbon. Um, so I would be very concerned about thinking about the environmental impact of building a new island, thinking about where the material comes from, uh, how it's done, um, whether it, it destroys habitat that's already there, whether it releases carbon as the material is dredged from the floor, uh, whether it changes currents, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all of which can get very, very um, obvious in, in the geophysical examination. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for your time today. Thank you for such a brilliant presentation. Um, thank you also to all of you at home for joining us today. As mentioned, the event will be available as a podcast and online video shortly. Today's event is part of a wider series on our oceans. So please do visit the IPR website for further details on the series and dates for upcoming lectures, where we'll be taking a great look at topics such as geopolitics, the blue economy, oceanic histories, and working with indigenous community. Thank you again, Mark. Thank you, Professor White, and to you all at home. Have a lovely evening. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate Bye. the opportunity to speak to you. Bye-bye.